Hello, and welcome to Friends for Life, a podcast of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod's Life Ministry. We're sharing the stories and insights of real people living out God's love for the people He's created. We hope you'll stick around and be our friends for life. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Steph Nugebauer. My guest today is Dr. Kim Markshausen, and we'll be offering a spin on the discussion of caregiving by answering the question, well, what kind of care does the caregiver need? When caring for others, the care, even the spiritual care of the caregiver is often overlooked. But as Kim will point out, the one giving care actually needs to receive care too. So for this short amount of time, we'll be putting ourselves in the shoes of the caregiver. What are their challenges? What burdens do they bear quietly? What feelings go unnoticed? What do they need? And how is the church and her people best positioned to care for the caregiver? Kim, it is a pleasure to have you on today. Would you please introduce yourself to the listeners? Well, Stephanie, I'm so glad to be here and to be a part of this wonderful podcast. Nothing makes me happier than to think about the needs of caregivers and how we as a church can serve them. My background in caregiving is that when, before I was even 40 years old, our family started caring for my husband's in-laws. So our children were one year old and 20 and seven years old, excuse me, when their grandfather was diagnosed with dementia. And they were 21 and 27 when we laid their grandmother to rest. So throughout that entire time, we were offering different levels of care to them and looking out for them and supporting uh, my mother-in-law as she cared for her husband. So it's been a big part of, of my life and my family's life too. My other background is that I taught in elementary schools for 26 years in Lutheran schools, loved that. Um, And then God tapped me on the shoulder and said, I'd like you to get a PhD in educational psychology. So that has also played a big part in, uh, in the writing of the book, Weary Joy, The Caregiver's Journey, because what I studied was cognition and emotions and how emotional changes in our life change the way we perceive things and understand things and how we make decisions. When I was reading through your book, Kim, I was really blessed by, uh, I'm guessing what is your educational psychology background Mm -hmm. in that throughout your chapters, you weave in scripture with psychology, with, you know, brain science Mm -hmm. and how, just as you said, our emotions and our past experiences feed into how we perceive things in our current situation. In the design of the book, let me say, I started each chapter with a story um, so that the caregiver who's reading it and I can find a connection that way and then weave that into an explanation as to what's going on, especially some of the things that we don't typically think of. You know, so a caregiver in a discussion is going to talk about the things that he or she needs to do. But um, my addition to that is, how are you feeling about that? How is the person you're caring for feeling? And let's talk about that. So I thought that was something new that I could offer to caregivers. And like you said, all those years of um, early of teaching in Lutheran schools, I can't not integrate the faith. <laughs> so <laughs> the Spirit helped me with that too. Kim, throughout the course of this last year, I've actually had several friends reach out to me asking if I knew of any resources that offered encouragement, Mm -hmm. offered suggestions, as they themselves are in the position of being a caregiver for someone. 
your book presented itself and I have now recommended it to several of my friends. You talk about, of course, your experience as a caregiver for your in-laws with memory loss, Mm -hmm. but you've also written this book in a way so that it can be used by all kinds of caregivers, not just for people caring for loved ones with memory loss, caregivers such as a spouse for another spouse, right? a parent for a child. Right. And so if I may, you kind of have this broad definition of what a caregiver is. How would you define caregiver? I like that you mentioned um, that unique kind of caregiving situation where someone is caring for their spouse. Um, And we typically think of that happening in the later years, but it's a huge emotional impact when it happens too when you're younger, especially if it makes you part of the sandwich generation, which means you are not only caring for your spouse, but you're also raising children. Still, that's a unique kind of situation. Um, so basically, to, to come up with a definition for caregiving, um, I think what brings to my mind are two things. Number one, caregiving involves a change of roles. So when I began caregiving for my in-laws, I changed my role gradually from a daughter-in-law into the primary person who made all the decisions in their life. And so that's, I think, even um, stronger in the case of caring for a spouse, because a marriage is a unique relationship that has its own kind of balance. It doesn't mean it's a 50-50 balance. It means it's a godly balance in how he's designed that relationship. And when you change your role and begin to care for your spouse, um, that balance is interrupted. And so that creates a new sense of loss. Um, So for me, the second part of the definition for caregiving is that it's a vocation. Um, So I have had lots of vocations, kindergarten teacher, great vocation, involves snacks and rest time. Yes. Couldn't beat that. Um, (laughs) Teaching undergrads and graduate students, love that too. I'm a speaker, I'm a writer, but caregiving is my vocation also. And I currently have five people, elderly people on my list that I care for here um, now in Lincoln. Uh, We're in the process of moving my dad into independent living. So that's a vocation from God every bit as much as anything else I do. So right now I'm talking on a podcast. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? And I'm using that PhD that God let me get. But yesterday I was washing dishes and cleaning out the refrigerator in my dad's apartment. And that's my vocation too. And I, for me, it's really helpful to think of caregiving as a vocation because it eases some of the weariness, some of the burden, because the responsibility for that vocation is God's. And the responsibility for the efficacy of my work is God's too. So when I make a mistake with my parents or aunts and uncles or in-laws, or in the future, if God calls me to care for my husband, um, God can still bring good out of that. And I talk about that quite a bit in the book because guilt is such a huge part of caregiving. We'll get into all of the complicated emotions Mm -hmm. associated with caregiving also, but I want to go back to that word vocation because it's Mm -hmm. a very lovely Lutheran word that we use a lot in this podcast, Friends for Life. The fact that 
the ultimate responsibility rests on God and his work. And he's using you as a mask, as Luther would say. Right. That is freeing, but it also comes with great responsibility. (laughs) You mentioned also married couples. That really gives a new meaning when you switch roles or add a role, maybe I should say, because you don't ever lose that role of spouse, but it changes Mm -hmm. to be the caregiver for your spouse as well. And that really emphasizes (laughs) what we say in our wedding vows when we say in sickness and in health. Mm -hmm. But these ultimately will put a great strain on a relationship. Thus, the need for a conversation of how do we ease the burdens as the people of Christ on the caregivers themselves as well? Your book is titled Weary Joy for a Reason. (laughs) Tell us about that title. You know, it was a working title. You typically do that when you're writing a book. Um, I like to pick a working title because it reminds me of the focus of the book. And so I chose those two words because I wanted to talk about both of those things in the book. I didn't just want to talk about the burdens. Um, I wanted to include the joys too. And I didn't want to make the book something that made a caregiver feel like they should only be feeling joy because it's okay for us to lament. It's okay for us to give those worries and burdens to God. I didn't think it would stick except that I talked to several caregivers and they said, that's the perfect title. And so it was something that, you know, when I worked with Concordia Publishing House, we decided to keep. Um, but I think it really um, hearkens to that, that understanding of law and grace. Because when we are caring for someone, when we're doing what, what's expected of us in caring for someone, we're working under the law, um, even through a vocation, even though we are the mask of God. Um, but because we have that vocation, because we have that support from God and that love from God, there is also great joy that we can feel in, in doing those actions and even in struggling with the changes of relationships. So weariness is an emotion. Mm-hmm. You also mention guilt, grief, shame, anger, even depression. Mm-hmm. All of these experiences that can be common to caretakers all can feel like great burdens in and of themselves in isolation. But then when you add them all together, can feel so heavy. What contributes to these emotions? What causes guilt? What causes grief? Um, Well, I think there's probably two different sources between guilt and grief. So I I like that you centered on those. Grief happens when we have loss. And when you're in a caregiving situation, you are really in almost a constant state of loss. I remember a good friend of mine, um, when she and her husband were in their 40s, he was diagnosed with MS. And I remember watching throughout um, that journey every little step of loss along the way. And so each new loss creates a new kind of grief. And the joy of that is that we can take those griefs to our Savior. We can lament them and and receive the help that we need. Guilt, on the other hand, it I, sometimes is trickier because quite often we assign guilt to ourselves that's not really warranted. 
You know, if I if I make a mistake with my mother-in-law, and I made lots of mistakes with my mother-in-law, I loved her dearly. <laughs> but as you read through some of the stories in the book, she she could be a bit of a handful too, and and that's one of the reasons I loved her so much. Um, but if when I actually made a mistake with her, I could apologize and be forgiven. But a lot of the guilt that we take on as caregivers is not guilt that's really assigned to us. It's guilt that we take on because we've put on our superhero capes. And we think that we are doing it all on our own. And that's um, very, very common. Um, I saw it with my mother-in-law. She cared for her husband. She really kind of circled the wagons and took on all the responsibility on herself. And then she could not accept our help very well because she took that as being evidence that she was making a mistake or that she wasn't doing things as well as she could. And so it was it was a an interesting Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> where um, we had a discussion with her, including her husband's sister who was eating with us and saying, you need to let us help you. This is not all on you. Um, there are others who can help. And once we were able to do that, she was able to release that kind of guilt that she didn't need to take on. Because um, God does not stand there and say, Doris, I expect you to care for your husband perfectly. He says, Doris, this is your vocation and I'm here to help you. And I'm giving a vocation of helping caregivers to others around you too. Hmm. You mentioned in your book, caregivers are often lonely. They're mm -hmm. often isolated. And in part because, well, their daily schedules have changed. They're running their loved one to doctor's appointments. They're um, in their homes uh, caring for them with their medication and their their ongoing care. And so their patterns of life change and are somewhat sometimes forced to be isolated. And so I would imagine that that compounded with the feeling of all of these burdens are on my shoulders, especially contributes to loneliness. And so how does a caregiver combat that when they feel like they, they don't really have an, an option to change their daily habits or daily patterns, and yet they feel lonely? Well, what what's the way out of that? Yeah, loneliness is a tricky thing because it can have um, a lot of different sources. Uh, you can feel lonely because you're cognitively overwhelmed, you know, like in your description of everything a caregiver needs to do. You can feel lonely. Um, I think in a spousal relationship, especially because you're gradually losing the way your spouse cared for you. And so you're feeling alone, even in your own marriage, as that relationship changes. And, and you also feel alone because you don't know of other people who really understand your situation. And it's not that you're going to church and looking around and thinking, these people don't care about me. It's that you're going to church and you're looking around and you're thinking, who really understands what it's like to take on this major change? And so God's answer to that, I think, is connection. He created us to be in fellowship with him and in fellowship with each other. And so reaching out and connecting is an important thing. Now, the downside of that is that you're giving a caregiver another thing to do. 
And, and so that makes me a little bit nervous because, you know, even, even in my book, I've got some resources in there, but I didn't list a lot of to-dos because they don't need more to do. They need to know that others are caring for them and that God's caring for them. So that typically leads my um, thinking toward what can we as members of the church do to help. And so one of the things I talk to churches about quite a bit, and in fact, in a week here, I'm going to be speaking at the National Lutherans for Life Conference, and my topic is advocating for the caregiver. And so one of the first things I think we can do as a church is to start a support group for caregivers. And you don't have to be a psychologist to run a support group. You just really need to care about the people. Um, And in a support group, you would be bringing these people together. And that support group might need to happen, we should be aware, might need to happen on Zoom because caregivers might not be able to leave their the people they're caring for. Um, But just to have that opportunity to to pray with other people, to hear a special message of God's grace designed for your situation, um, and to be able to talk to others and to find out you aren't alone in feeling guilty. You aren't alone in feeling despair. And And to hear other ways that God is helping other people reminds you too, of how God is there to help you. Um, And in in the design of the book, I put discussion questions so that the book could be used for support group. In fact, had a good friend who's done support group for years. And when she reviewed a chapter for me, the first thing she said is, I would use this with the support group because each chapter really just um, zeroes in on one particular topic. So the important thing for those people is to have someone else to talk to. Um, The other thing I'd love to see churches do is to seek out and find out who in their congregation is caregiving because there's so many hidden caregivers or people that we're not thinking about because we've been praying for their loved one. But when we think of the caregiver, we just think, oh, it's good that that loved one has that person to care for them. We don't always take that extra step. So seeking them out. Um, here's, here's a good example why. I, I was at church um, just a couple weeks ago and saw an elderly gentleman there. No, he's caregiving for his wife. So stopped over to talk to him. Asked him, told him I've you know, been missing his wife. And he said, she really misses coming to church. She hasn't had communion in I don't know how many months. And I looked at him and I said, you know, you can call the church office and just tell the secretary and she'll pass that along to our visitation pastor. He would love to come to your house and, um, and worship with you and allow the two of you to commune together. And he looked at me like he'd never thought of that before. And I know he had, I know he was aware of it, but that's the example of that cognitive overload and that taking on every responsibility for yourself, even when we fight it, it didn't occur to him to think, oh, there's a pastor who will come to my home. So we really need to seek them out and find out what their needs are. Um, God's not expecting us to solve all their problems, but um, fellowship means we care about them. Now, what about those who are listening, who are thinking to themselves, A support group sounds great, but I don't know of one in my area. 
I know that my church doesn't have one and I don't have the energy to, to do a start either. one. So what's the, what is the solution? Are there other resources out there or ways to connect people that we might not be aware of? Well, first of all, I would tell caregivers, don't be afraid to ask your church. And I would love to see churches kind of network on that too. Like in, I live in Lincoln, Nebraska. We are blessed to have quite a few LCMS Lutheran churches. And so one church could do a support group. Another church could do another kind of ministry and we could spread that around. If we don't ask, we don't know what the possibilities are. Um, and in that asking, you are also letting um, your pastor or your elders know of your need. Um, but beyond that, what I recommend to um, caregivers is that they find an accountability partner, that they find a friend that they can talk to. And I know um, I did this um, during an extra burdensome time in my life while we were caregiving for my in-laws. Our son was diagnosed with epilepsy. And so that um, took on a whole new dimension in our life because it was quite a while before we could get the seizures under control. And, uh, you know, my husband and I couldn't even leave him uh, because he might have a seizure that would go on um, and not stop and kill him. It was really a difficult and stressful time. And we're so grateful that God brought him through that. But I remember having a friend at school that I would say, I need you to check up on me. And she would do that. And she would come and ask me questions about myself. And she would say, Kim, how is your health? And make me think about myself a little bit. Um, and she offered respite care. We weren't able to uh, take her up on that because I wasn't able to train her on the medicines he needed. But it helped me so much to know that she was willing to do that. And so finding that person, that friend, and saying, I don't need you to solve my problems for you, for me. I just need to know someone out there is going to call me periodically and say, how are you doing? And make me answer. Hmm. And in a way, I suppose, by you reaching out to your friend, mm -hmm. <laughs> you're saying, I still need your friendship. Mm -hmm. I still need you. And I still need community, despite the fact that I might not be reaching out as often or, or, or checking in or being able to go to lunch or dinners or whatever with uh, you or with the group. I still want that and, and need that. And so that communicates to your friends that even though you may be silenced a little bit more in your busyness of caring for your loved one at home, that you are still there as a friend and you're relying on them to care for you in this season. We're so reluctant as humans to ask for help. We really want to have things under control and we really want to be able to handle everything. And even as Christians, sometimes we'll think, if I can't handle this new struggle in my life, it must mean my faith is weak. But the reality is we are in our human condition. We are completely dependent on God, but we are also dependent on each other. When we understand vocation as being us being the mask of God, then that means when my friend is caring for me, if I turn away that care, I'm turning away God's care. 
And I, I would love for caregivers to have that kind of picture in their mind that the people that they can ask for help or the people who are coming to them offering help are coming with the mask of God because it gives you a different perspective on, am I being weak to accept that help? Well, yeah, I am being weak, but God tells me I'm weak. And that's what brings me to my, my understanding of my complete dependence on him. And so that weakness in that instance is not a flaw. It's something that brings me to God. Mm. And Galatians 6 reminds us of this as the community of believers to bear one right. another's burdens and, and so therefore fulfilling the law of Christ. Right. And that is what we as Christian church are to do and as Christian friends are to do for one another. And in your book, towards the end, you even mention sometimes your role in a community for a time or maybe for your whole life is to be the receiver and to mm -hmm. receive the care. And you also, by doing that, are serving a role. You are serving a role. That's the beauty of the Christian church. Right. As a body of believers, we have different roles. We can receive and we can give. There's not uh, an expectation of returns. Right. Well, you know, we can think about Luther's um, example for vocation, and he talked about the shoemaker. Uh, you know, I love that particular analogy that a shoemaker doesn't need to put a cross on every shoe to be the mask of God. When the shoemaker makes those shoes, then another father in a different family that can't make shoes is able to do something for the shoemaker in exchange for those shoes. So the shoemaker helps that father. Um, help his family and the other families help that shoemaker with his family. You know, when we have that in a business setting like that, we don't worry about it. When I taught kindergarten, parents didn't worry about me serving them with their kindergartners. But if we could keep that same thing in mind when someone says, I'd like to come to your house and do a thorough spring cleaning for you because I know you don't have time. Can I set aside my vanity about the condition of my house and allow this person to be the mask of God and do what God has equipped them to do? It's so hard, um, but such an important thing. Hmm. Now, Kim, we've had on our show uh, Deaconess Pamela Billy Silva to talk about her caregiving for her, particularly for her mother, Cheryl Magnus on to Talk to us about caregiving for her mother inside of her home. And then uh, most recently, the Lochrans to talk about mm -hmm. um, caring and receiving care as a family with a daughter with disabilities. But now I like to focus the rest of our time here on the caregiving and care receiving between spouses, because that's unique in itself. As you had said, Typically, uh, within a marriage, uh, we have two people working and each serving the other as God has designed. What are the unique dynamics within a marriage and caregiver and a care receiver being spouses? Well, you certainly touched on that when you talked about the losses um, and, and that change of role. Um, because I was just thinking as you are uh, posing that question that when, when I, you know, the last couple of weeks, I've been increasing the amount of time I spend caring for my dad and working with my brother and sister on that. And my husband just kind of moves into that empty space and, um, and knows that he needs to support me. 
as I'm doing that. So not only does he step in and say, I've got dinner taken care of tonight, or, well, I don't allow him to do laundry. There's reasons that we won't go into, but, (laughs) (laughs) or he will just, you know, if I say to him, this, this, I'm having this problem with this technology, he'll just go ahead and take care of it for me, knowing I need my day to move smoothly. You just don't have that in a spouse relationship. And so the burdens you take on within the family um, get bigger and bigger. And it really forces you to go outside of your family then to ask for help. And I, you know, I look at all the years that we were caring for Marks and Doris, um, years of great joy, but we were passing back and forth the things that we were doing. Um, So some things would be Paul's job and some things would be mine. Why it was my job to take the keys away from my mother-in-law, we never quite figured out because that was probably one of the least fun jobs, but we could always share that. But as I've watched my friends who've taken on caregiving for their spouses, thinking especially in terms of a pastor friend of mine caring for his wife who has MS, um, it's just, it's, you, there's not someone else in the family that can help. And it's harder. It's, it's just harder. So it does force you to seek outside help. But at, if you're young, especially, you don't, you don't see anyone else in that position, do you? So when we're elderly and we're taking care of our spouse, we likely have other friends doing the same. But when we're in our 30s or 40s, it is a, a, a space of loneliness. Hmm. Now I'm going to ask something that's probably particularly hard to answer. What about the spouse who is receiving the care? Mm-hmm. What can they do? How can their perspective change so that they're gracious in receiving care and that in a new way, they have capacity to also think about the needs of their spouse, the caregiver, mm-hmm. particularly if things that they were able to do before aren't able to be done anymore. And I'm thinking of physical touch, physical em- mm-hmm. embrace, providing that right, comfort that right. they probably used to be able to do. What could we hope and pray for? It is a challenging question to ask because it depends so much on the nature of whatever is the illness or the disability too. Um, Sometimes that person receiving care is able to change what they do. Um, So for instance, someone who can no longer provide the physical aspects, they maybe can't um, take the kids to childcare anymore. They can't repair things at home. They can't even put their arm around their spouse to show them that love because of of what they're dealing with. Sometimes that person can change their role and be the person that prays and, and, and look for a new role to take on because that helps the person receiving care as much as it helps the caregiver. Um, But of course, if you're looking at someone with dementia, um, that may not be a possibility. So maybe we could look at this from another perspective, and I could talk a little bit about one of the unique um, things that happens between a caregiver and someone receiving care that becomes sometimes a burden for the caregiver. And that is, um, we recognize that caregivers perform a lot of emotional labor. 
So in emotional labor, you know, I had to do this as a kindergarten teacher, that if a child got angry at me and said they hated me, which, you know, would happen several times a day, um, <laughs> not, but, but then two minutes later, I'm getting a hug and I'm their favorite person. So don't, <laughs> yeah. don't get a picture in your mind of a mean kindergarten teacher, but they're shooting at me a lot of emotions and I have to absorb it. Now that's relatively easy to do in kindergarten. That's a lot harder to do when it's your spouse or when it's another loved one. You know, when, when I remember when my friend had to say to her husband, you can no longer drive. And I remember how difficult that was. And I'm certain that there was a lot of anger that happened and she had to absorb that anger. Um, this is one of the reasons why I talk so often in the book about, and encourage caregivers to turn and look for someone else to talk to. A therapist can do wonders in helping a couple to look at their new situation and figure out how their roles are changing and how they can offer new kinds of support to each other. But even therapy just for the caregiver can help the caregiver to realize what kind of emotions he or she is swallowing and taking and absorbing. Um, because that constant emotional labor is part of what eats away at the health and the emotional health, physical and emotional health of the caregiver. You need some place for that to go. We need to, you know, as I mentioned before, lament that to God and allow God give up, to give us people we can talk to, to deal with those kinds of things. How do you know when it's time to accept help? from others, uh, even professional help in caring for a loved one? I would say, and this is the same kind of advice that I have given to um, parents when I was teaching, that I've given to students who are going through a difficult time. I would say, don't wait until you know you need help. If you have a major change in your life, you need help. You know, I think that's God's signal to you. And I've had um, challenges implying that in my own life. And, you know, and right now, um, this Bible study group that I lead, these ladies are letting me know when I bring up, you know, new prayer requests for the five people that I'm caring for, their response is always, Kim, we need to pray for you too. So every time you make that connection with a friend or with someone at church or with a therapist, you have someone else who can give you that feedback. Um, you need help before you realize it. Hmm. You know, I, I've been convicted by these dear friends of mine that I need to get some help for myself. And right now finding that help within my marriage, but the next step may be therapy too. And I, I'm not going to put that off. Just a plug for pastoral counseling as well, because mm -hmm. I'm married to a pastor. <laughs> you have a pastor in your church who is there to listen, to help, to guide you back to scripture. And yes. it's as simple as making a phone call and even asking him to come visit you in your home. As you had said, often caregivers just do not have that time or flexibility. And so they need the people to come to them. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I hate to put an extra burden on pastors, but I love that you brought that up. Um, and, 
and that is exactly the kind of care you should seek out from your pastor, that spiritual care, because we constantly need people to remind us of what God is doing for us. Um, our natural mindset is to assume we need to do it all on our own. Hmm. And that's the nature of our sin. Yeah. Well, and thank you for leading us really uh, to my next question, which is, in addition to the pastor, how can the church, the people of God, come together to offer caregivers help? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I love starting with that idea of vocation and for all church members to realize that they have other vac vocations besides the job that God's given them or their family situation. And sometimes that vocation is a very quick thing that you can do. It might be the vocation that says, before church starts, I'm going to wander around and check on those people that I know are caregivers and just let them know that I'm caring about them. Uh, maybe your vocation is to pray for people. Um, one of the reasons why I mentioned before that one of the first things a church can do is to seek out and find who are the caregivers in their church is because when COVID started, I went to our associate pastor and I said, can you give me a list of caregivers and I will check on them because I knew that many of them were elderly and they were stuck in their homes. They might not have the computers that they needed to do online worship. He had a very short list and I knew there were more people out there. I think that's just a great thing for us to start with. I, it, wouldn't that be a wonderful job for elders or for um, someone in LWML to say, we're going to go through our membership list and call everyone and find out who's caregiving? Who are those younger women who are caregiving for parents? Who are those parents who are caregiving for a child with a disability? Who are those caregivers caring for their spouse? Or who are the ones who have, who aren't doing a huge job in caregiving, but they're like me, where they've got five people on their list? And just find out who they are. I think that's a great first step, because then when you know who they are and you know the needs, then God very easily gives you an idea of what you can do. <laughs> He's quite happy to do that. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the answer to the question, who is our neighbor? And so as the church, we can do our part in, in reaching out, taking the initiative ourselves in finding mm -hmm. who are the caregivers. We can provide meals. We can create meal trains. We can offer our time in coming in and sitting with, if it's possible, the loved ones so that the caregiver can go out and do grocery shopping or have respite time to themselves mm -hmm. in other ways. Then I think of the church as offering, of course, the means of grace to not forget the spiritual care that is provided through word and sacrament ministry, through communion. God feeds us with his very self. And whether we can go to church in person or have the pastor come and give us communion, do confession and absolution with the pastor as well. The kind of spiritual feeding that happens through word and sacrament ministry can't be forgotten during this important time. Right. And that, you know, the, the sacraments remind us again of our dependence. And I think that's a message that we as caregivers need to be told over and over again. Hmm. Um, I also like to encourage the church to keep caregivers in their unique needs in mind as they're expanding whatever ministries they're doing. So we are, for instance, at our church, we're working on expanding small group ministries. 
Well, one of the benefits of, of me being on that committee is that I'm always talking about those caregivers. Um, so we're going to think, too, how can we do small group ministry that involves people who are caregivers? And maybe it's not um, a group that meets for an hour for a Bible study. Maybe it's um, something that happens more often but is shorter and happens online so that person can connect with other people. I was this idea was really brought to my mind during COVID because here in Lincoln, when COVID vaccines became available, um, I realized that three of the five people on my list were not going to be able to access vaccines. They didn't have computers, so they couldn't sign up for it. They didn't have a way of getting down to the arena in downtown traffic and get that done. And so I organized that, got checked to see if they wanted vaccines, got them signed up, took them to get vaccines, argued with them afterwards over who was going to pay for the ice cream, which of course we needed to have ice cream after we had shots, right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm there at the ice cream window with three credit cards in my face <laughs> saying, no, I've got this. I've got the window. But it occurred to me later, I should have gone back to my church and said, could we put out a message in the newsletter that I could do this for other people? But, you know, I, I just, I didn't think of the unique needs of, of caregivers during that time. Now we've talked a lot about the burdens that caregivers shoulder, but your book also has the word joy in the title. Mm -hmm. What is the joy in being a caregiver? Well, we always have a joy in living out our vocation. Um, so even if my vocation is hard work, there is joy. When I was teaching kindergartners, there was the simple joy of seeing them learn something new. There was the joy of telling them a Bible story and seeing the, the awe and wonder in their eyes. Um, apart from the time when I was telling the story of creation and had a kindergartner ask me if I was there. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> yeah. Ouch. You know, I thought I'm, I'm too good at telling that story if that's what they're saying. <laughs> so we, we look for those kind of joys, but um, even in the awesomeness that God has asked me to do this is an important thing. You know, when I go to a conference and I'm, sometimes I'm a keynote speaker. I remember one time I was a keynote speaker at a conference with 800 people. Um, it's easy for me to think, oh, I, I'm so happy to do this because I'm touching the lives of 800 people. But when we see things as a vocation, then we recognize that's no more important and no more a source of joy than doing that small thing, than helping my mother into the car when I'm taking her to a doctor appointment. And, and so that's what I love about that doctrine of vocation is that realization that I'm the mask of God. I mean, doesn't that just give you goosebumps mm -hmm. to think of that? I'm the mask of God. He is using me to do something. And so that that is a very strong source of joy. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned in your book, just the opportunity for growth that serving mm -hmm. provides. The fact that it produces in us perseverance and endurance, which scripture holds in high regard as characteristics of the people of God. Right. And, and you don't know how you're going to use that endurance in another situation. Hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. We, we certainly saw that with our children. Our children grew up being caregivers and there were um, disadvantages to that. I'm sure there were times when they didn't get to go to camp, for instance, because we needed to be at grandma and grandpa's house. Um, there was probably money we didn't have to do for things because we were supporting them. But I also remember a time when my daughter as a high schooler and my son as a middle schooler got the job of tearing down the porch on uh, my father-in-law's studio. He was an artist. They got to tear down that porch and rebuild it. Now, who gets to do that? They did. And that taught them a lot about what they were capable of with God's help. Um, My daughter had to spend a summer once with her grandfather. Um, Shortly after his dementia, he was still able to do his art, but he wasn't able to stick with the project. And he would come up, come to his wife and say, well, who's working on that project in my studio? (laughs) And so she brought my daughter in every day. She was a middle schooler, Anne was, and she sat there with her grandfather and kept his mind on his work. And she saw him do one of his famous burnt wood sculptures. And just this past summer, she had a commission to do a sculpture very similar to that. And so she's found her gift uh, because she was able to serve. And so that brings me joy now um, as I look on those years when they were serving their grandparents. Hmm. That's beautiful. I can't help but put myself in the shoes of a caregiver as a mother as well. Mm -hmm. And as I was reading your book, I found it to be incredibly relevant to the work I'm doing as a mom to three little people. Uh, I was able to, in some ways, relate to what an experience of a, of a full-time caregiver would be for say a spouse or elderly parents, (laughs) Um, because in many ways they require uh, so much of me that I have to put other things I'm on the sideline or I I sense isolation because I'm stuck at home with kids for the fourth week in a row who are sick. Right. Absolutely. I would just like to share with our listeners that whether you are in the traditional role that you might think a caregiver to be, this book is for you. <laughs> because yeah. if you are not finding yourself in a vocation as caregiver now, it's likely that you will in the future. And so I commend this book to everyone who's listening and to be able to pass this along to the people in their lives who are caregivers as well. I love how you mentioned that um, caring for children is caregiving too. Um, It's just caregiving that tends to have more support in the world because it's something we recognize is going to happen. But those um, lessons about caregiving Um, Even in my book, Caring for Two People Who Had Dementia, those lessons are universal. Um, Just like you said, they're the same things that you feel in different kind of caregiving situations. Yes. And then when you mentioned emotional labor, especially as a a kindergarten teacher, I'm thinking as I'm reading this, oh my, I'm, as you said, I'm absorbing so many emotions Mm -hmm. in my day. And to learn how to deal with that in a healthy way, (laughs) as your book kind of offers that in itself, yes, it was a blessing to me. So thank you for providing this for our entire church body. Oh, it it was a joy. It was a joy to do it. And I'm grateful for that opportunity too, and for Concordia Publishing House and and what they're doing and spreading the word on the book. Yes, absolutely. So Kim, where can we find your book? 
you can find it anywhere books are sold. <laughs> Isn't that the usual thing? Perfect, yes. Certainly encouraged to go to Concordia Publishing House and purchase it there. Um, it's also available on Kindle if you'd like to have a copy of it on, on your iPad. Um, so, and I, when I speak at conferences, I bring it around and sell it too. Definitely a book for people that you know of who are caregiving, a book for you if you have concerns about others who are caregiving, um, a great resource for a church. I would love to see more DCEs look at this book and think, what could we do, for instance, at our church or pastors too, not to give pastors yet another job, but, you know, just to be, have that awareness. This should be on the bookshelf of every pastor, in my opinion. Thank you so much, Kim, for being here with me today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and don't forget to click the follower subscribe button so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. New episodes drop twice each month. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Friends for Life LCMS. And finally, listeners, we want to hear from you. Do you have an idea about a guest you'd like to hear from or a topic you want talked about? Email us at friendsforlife at lcms.org. We want to hear from you about what you want to hear about when it comes to issues of life. Thanks for joining us. Friends for Life is a podcast that introduces listeners to life issues by introducing them to friends who stand for life. Thank you.